Welcome to the Questions for the Sages podcast. I'm Michael Scherer. Today I sat with Champakalata Saki Devidasi. We talked about her journey from acting classes in New York City to her involvement with the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, her visits to India, her family ties, and her guru. Thank you, Champak, for agreeing to be interviewed. You can hear the Questions for the Sages podcast on questionsforthesages.com, the Questions for the Sages Facebook page, iTunes, and on YouTube. Thank you to the Hare Krishna community of Potomac, Maryland, for making this podcast possible. Hello and welcome to Questions for the Sages, a podcast from the Washington, D.C. area. Today I am talking with Champakalata Saki Devi Dasi. at the, um, in the Bhakti Lounge, which is a sort of a, a room on the grounds of the Hare Krishna Temple in Potomac, Maryland, which is in the Washington, D.C. area. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And what, do your friends abbreviate that a little bit? Yeah, a lot of people call me Chumpak. Chumpak. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, Chumpak. And I, I wanted to ask you uh, uh, some questions about... Uh, being here, as I was setting up, you mentioned that you you had a voice and speech class. Mm-hmm. Where was that? At the Stellar Adler Stella Adler Acting Conservatory in New York City. Really? Mm-hmm. That's um, that's a prestigious place, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> like a lot of famous people came out of there. Yeah. No, I don't know what it, how it is today. If it's changed, if it's still sort of a the 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 acting studio of the stars. It's it's one of the best acting schools in New York City. That's really for sure. <laughs> so so you went to the to the acting school with with what it, what was your goal? Like what what was your career plan when you went there? Uh, well, since I was young, since I was about seven years old, I was a dancer and an actress, and I was. I remember my first dance class, I told my mom, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And from then on, I just dedicated myself to it, and I wanted to pursue it professionally. So I didn't even want to go to college at all. I wanted to move straight to New York City, but my parents said, okay, you have to try college a little bit. So I went to University of Arizona and wanted to double major in dance and acting, but they said I had to pick one. So after a semester, I dropped out and moved to New York to pursue an acting career. Um, you know, this interview is about you. It's, it's, it's not about me, but I'll just throw, <laughs> throw in this anecdote. I did the same thing. So, oh. <laughs> but anyway, so we could talk a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, so you went to New York mm-hmm. to be an actress. Yeah, that was my intention. And where did you live? I lived a couple different places in New York. I lived first in Murray Hill, which I didn't like very much. Murray Hill. Yeah, it's it's Murray Hill is a. It's close, it's like the Midtown East area, so not the East Village, it's more uptown than that, around like 32nd Street, that's where I first moved. Um, (laughs) And then after that I moved to the West Village, and then after that I moved to Brooklyn. Brooklyn was my favorite. Oh yeah? Okay. Yeah, I was, I lived in Williamsburg for a little while. Oh nice, yeah. (laughs) I lived um, off of Parkside Avenue. Okay. Yeah, so. (laughs) So what happened? Um, 
did you get any parts or was was it the sort of the rude awakening that most actors find when they move to New York? Mm, well, I didn't first start auditioning. I wanted to first do the school thing and really get mm. good training before starting and auditioning and good connections. And, yeah. and this acting school really did provide that. But then afterwards, something interesting happened. I never really ended up having an acting or dance career because after, after I finished school, um, I started working at Lululemon Athletica in the city, which is the company that sells the yoga stretchy pants. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, and, and I was doing meditation and reading different spiritual books and really seeking spiritually. And I got into yoga, um, and I I first started with Bikram yoga, and then I mm-hmm. started. Uh, one of the perks at working at Lululemon is that they actually pay for you to go and take different yoga classes. So I got to go to like literally like every single meditation and yoga center in New York City, and I found myself at Jiva Mukti Yoga in Union Square, and I was very very drawn there. I walked in, and the first day I felt like very much home. No, I don't know anything about Jivan Mukti Yoga. What is it? It's uh, it's asana. It's a combination of uh, spirituality, dharma talks, asana, meditation. Asana? Yeah. What is that? Uh, the physical postures of yoga. So okay. the actual physical yoga practice. Uh, they very much also... Um, so uh, does that imply tights and um, yoga mats? Like when you say mats, asana... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. And and they also very much emphasize uh, veganism there. So oh. my, my I went from you know, not being even vegetarian to my first day there, getting one of those PETA magazines and uh-huh. reading about it, and I just went like, you know, cold turkey vegan that day. Really. And I kind of went through this really transforming experience while I worked at Lululemon, and I was really diving deeply into my yoga practice of having those aha moments of I actually don't want to be an actress. I actually mm. don't want to pursue this anymore. Um, what was it that changed your mind? Like, what was it that you thought you wanted that you realized that you didn't want? Wow, that's such a good question. I think a couple things. The first thing is I, I, had, a, I had this, I had a love for acting and a love for dance. The love for dance and acting was a feeling of connection. Um, I always, I really actually always felt that I could express myself emotionally through dance, and I also felt connected with the divine. I was raised Christian, and I felt I used to just go to the beach and dance and dance for hours, and I felt really deeply connected to God and all that is by that. And then in acting, what I really liked about it was I was always very interested in philosophy and psychology. And I liked being able to enter into the psychology of other human beings and learn about the human experience. And so that was very fascinating to me to enter emotionally into that, to try to step into another person's shoes and then actually... It's like a whole other world when you're in acting, which I'm sure you know because you've also been in that world. When, you, when, you're, when you're on the stage... It's an out-of-body experience where, where um, you're no longer just in your life or virtual reality machine, as Gary Govert on Prabhu would say, but you're in someone else's. So I could experience life in different ways. So I was very much uh, attracted to that. And I also very much had this idea of if 
if I could somehow or other become well known in this field, I could then be an advocate. And I had an idea of like helping empower young women uh, through my story and through helping them with whatever issues that they might have that young women go through. So I, I thought that it would be, number one, it was just a passion and something that I loved. And number two, I thought that that I could actually help make the world a better place if I was successful. I think that I realized with my practice of yoga that number one, those experiences that I had on stage, the experiences that I could have through yoga and meditation were far deeper and were far more meaningful where I could actually connect to God deeper and I could deeper than what like um hmm than I had than I had ever experienced before in my life I felt I'll tell you a story so when I was in acting school they had us do this poetry project and basically the instructions were it's just you on stage you have to use at least three bodies of literature do whatever you want um, so what I did is I came up with different characters and I used different blogs I found from the internet. The first one was a coke addict and she was reading from uh, Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now while simultaneously sniffing cocaine mm. <laughs> to try to find the now, to try to find the, that moment now. But she, she, she was reaching for that but then she, was, she had this addiction and she was kind of trying to find herself. Then the next character was at her father's graveyard. She had just lost her father. She had been a caretaker for her father. And when her father died, she had this identity crisis, like, who am I? Not knowing who she was anymore. And having to, with the loss of her father, also lose her that identity and try to find herself. Then the next person was a, a dancer. And this was, this was also from my life because one of the things in my journey was I also had a, a severe hip injury, which, at, which I had to get two hip surgeries on at one point and, and put a temporary, like, I don't know if I'm still going to be able to be a dancer type of thing. Um, and she, she couldn't dance. She was on crushes, crutches and she was uh, reading, she was dancing with her upper body because she couldn't use her lower body to uh, cold play lyrics ab about, about suffering. And then the last person was this um, southern girl who just was tired of being a wife, tired of being a mother, tired of being a sister or a daughter and just went in the forest and just sat down and tried to have a conversation with God. And, and so I think that that I was looking for that connection through the material world and through art and through dance and through acting and through these different identities that I had on myself. I was a dancer. I was, that was my identity. Mm. You know, I had a very, very strong identity of that. And, and I think it also was the hip thing when that was threatened that shook me up and I, I had to look deeper. I had to look deeper for for who I was, um, and so when I came to yoga and meditation, I started to experience like I'm the soul, I'm not the body, and these identities that I've made of being a young New Yorker professional aren't really what I want. What I wanted was what I was getting, which was so profound, and then I wanted to become a yoga teacher and be able to share that with others and give that to others. So did you think that being a yoga teacher sort of uh, fulfilled those same needs, but in a more efficient way? 
I felt like it addressed the root, the root. And, and I, I, my realization was that acting and dance can't address the root by itself without a spiritual practice. Because yeah, we're connecting, but I felt like when I found that being a yoga teacher was a platform where if I'm an actress, I'm becoming a character. And there's meaningful messages within theater. There's meaningful messages within dance. They can be very profound. But I was just, I, I felt like here's an opportunity for me to be able to talk directly with people about God and about the soul and about spiritual life. When you were facing the possibility of, of, of not being able to identify as a dancer, yeah, was that before or after New York City? That was in New York City. Okay, so that was that was, yeah, that was a shakeup, yeah, a serious shakeup, yeah. And so, and it was in this sort of general period that you went to the Jivanmukti Yoga. It was after that period. It was after that period. Hip was, I healed my I healed my hip through Bikram Yoga. Uh -huh. And then by the time I got to Jeev Mukti, it was healed. So the possibility, you know, of... At that time, I was more focused on being an actress, but the possibility of being a dancer was there again because it was better. Um, are you a dancer? No. Yeah. Well, once you're a dancer, you're always a dancer. Okay, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> you are a dancer. Yeah. That is That is part of your identity. Now... You know, you, you had said before that you were uh, trying to find these things in a material way, but my impression is that uh, many spiritual traditions eagerly incorporate acting and, da and dancing yeah. into their tradition. It's part of their spiritual program. Yeah. So it's not, um, it's not like uh, being a dancer would in any way prevent your spiritual life, would it? Or, not, or would it? Mm, that's a good question. Not at all, but where I was at that point in my life, in my spiritual search, is I felt like I needed an immersion. Although you can, in, in bhakti yoga and Krishna consciousness, you, you don't at all have to stop your career. And Prabhupada told people, no, you don't stop your career. You keep doing your career, and it doesn't at all impede your spiritual life. It can actually help propel you forward in your life. But I felt in my heart, for just in my personal life, such a deep calling that I needed an immersion. I felt like, I felt like, you know, looking back, perhaps it was immaturity, but I think I'm, I would never change anything for the world because I'm so happy I made the decisions that I made and that they've led me to the place where I am today because I think that wanting to dive just full in my spiritual life like so I could just dedicate all of my time to, to learning and to sharing, um, that's what I really wanted. So did you have an immersion? I did. Now, was this, is, was this, how is this related time-wise to the Jivan Mukti class? Yeah, so I got really involved in Jivan Mukti. And while I was working at Mulaman 
you know, that's when I decided I don't want to be an actress anymore. I did a teacher training there. Um, that was beginning of 2011 and started teaching. So I really had an immersion there. I was still working. You know, I still had a job, but my direction was going in that way. Then after, shortly after that time, I started attending a Bhagavad Gita class uh, with uh, Joshua Green in New York City at the Jiva Mukti Why does Center. that name sound familiar? He wrote Gita Wisdom. Maybe that's why. Okay. And um, Gita Wisdom? Is one of the books we sell here. He's a disciple of Srila Prabhupada. Okay. Yeah, his spiritual name is Yogeshwara Prabhu. And he... He was giving the class? Uh, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. he gave once a week at the Jiva Mukti Yoga Center. Okay. And then I, I kept actually hearing about this book, The Journey Home, by Radhana Swami. And I was very intrigued by it. And then one day, Radhana Swami was actually a guest speaker at the Bhagavad Gita class. And I'll never forget that day. I was with my friends, and we were, like, out to dinner. And I said, the Swami's coming, the Swami's coming, the Swami's coming. We can't be late. The Swami's coming. We have to be there. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. And then I said, we have to get the Swami a flower. And so I got the Swami a flower, and then we went to the talk, and he gave the talk. And we did the kirtan and everything. And after, after that, uh, I hadn't read his book yet, so I felt like, you know, there was other people around him. What do I really have to say to him? But I wanted to give him the flower. So I went up, I gave him the flower, and I offered my obeisances to him. And when and what does offering obeisances mean? Just for, for listeners who might, that, that sounds archaic in a way. Yeah, it does. So I, I bowed down to offer my respects. Okay. And... When I did that and when I gave him the flower, he, he looked at me and he looked into my eyes and it was this look of recognition and unconditional love. And it was so deep, it was something that was deeper than anything I'd ever experienced. And at that moment in my heart, I, I heard a voice like, this is your guru, this is your teacher. At the time, I was really looking for my guru, for my teacher. My, my mind wasn't ready to accept that yet. I mean, I hadn't even read his book, right? But something very strong happened in that moment and I went and I bought the book and I ended up reading it five times and it felt like everything that was in my heart all of my longings my searchings were written down on a piece of paper through the external journey that he went on and I was so inspired by it that I just wanted to have you have you read in the journey home he basically he's 19 this is in the 1960s he go he goes with his friends to Europe for the summer supposedly they get robbed their first day there. They stay anyways. One of the friends went home. They hitchhike with no money through Europe. He's in a cave in the Greek Isles, and he hears the voice of God go to India. So he hitchhikes through Afghanistan and Turkey during like the cholera epidemic, almost gets murdered so many times, gets into India, almost gets rejected and not allowed to come into India. Then he studies with sages and yogis and different religious and spiritual traditions. You know, he studied with Christians and Muslims and Jews and yogis. And, and that resonated with me because I was raised Christian. I studied Christianity. You know, I studied, I, I studied everything that I could possibly get my hands on. And so I appreciated that he took the essence from each of these different traditions in his path until he eventually came to Vrindavan in the path of Bhakti Yoga and his teacher, Srila Prabhupada. I was so moved by this book and resonated so deeply with it that I felt I need to do my own journey home. I need to just go to India. 
Hmm. And I told my friends that, and they were like, you know, <laughs> calm down, <laughs> like, right. take it a day at a time. But I, I kept working. I saved up money, and I, I did. I had planned a 17-month pilgrimage to India where I had planned to go to different yoga ashrams before getting to Vrindavan, which is where he went to with the, and found his path, the path of bhakti yoga. Because I knew in my heart that once I got to Vrindavan, I was finished. It was over. I was going to take shelter of this path of bhakti yoga. I was going to take shelter of Radhana Swami as my guru. Uh, but I, I never wanted to have a doubt, and I never wanted to look back and wonder if I had made the right decision. I wanted to know that by the time I commit myself, I've explored every other option, and I know it's not my path. Now, can I ask you something? How is <clears throat> meeting someone who you're sure wants to, you want to be your guru, and uh, how is that like, and how is that different finding the person you want to marry? <laughs> um, hmm. I think there's some similarities there because they're the two most important decisions of your life. When you, when you find you... Basically, you're choosing a partner in, a, in, in both cases. Yeah. Finding a guru is like choosing your spiritual father. It's like finding that person that... When I met Radhana Swami, I felt like this is a person who knows the ultimate truth. This is a person that I can trust completely. This is a person that I feel comfortable offering my life to. I feel I can follow this person. I feel I can dedicate my life to serving this person. And I have no doubt that this person can give me the ultimate truth, the ultimate goal of life. And this person can... I had, enough, I had um, many teachers before coming to Radhana Swami who I respect and honor so much and I'm so grateful to. But I felt when I met Radhana Swami, this person can take me all the way. This person has attained the goal of life. So I, I felt that I, I trusted this person. And I feel like with a husband, you also have to trust that person completely. Because when you're in a husband and wife relationship, when you're in that partnership, ideally God is also in the center. And you're serving God together. And you have to be able to trust that we can attain that goal of life together, that we can commit ourselves to serving this person for life, that we can have so much respect for this person that it's a joy to serve this person for life. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you. Um, so what happened when you went to India? Yeah, so I went, I spent my first month at the Shivananda Ashram in Madurai. Um, and already it was becoming clear to me. I was reading the Bhagavad Gita on my breaks and <laughs> asking all these questions, you know. Um, and, and then I went to Hardwar and I was at Anandamai Ma's ashram there, which was an amazing experience being on the Ganges River and being at that ashram. But I was also sneaking off to the Iskon Temple in Hardwar and, and uh, getting inspiration from them there. And then I changed all of my plans. I had planned to go to all these other places, but I ended up meeting some devotees of Krishna. And uh, it was the summer, so it was very hot. Going up to Ludhiana, which is a very small temple, and staying there for about a week. And then I went to Vrindavan. 
And I ended up staying in Vrindavan for three months, and it was in Vrindavan that I committed myself to the practice of bhakti yoga. And how was that manifested? Like, how did how did that commitment become reality? In I committed myself to chanting sixteen rounds and per day, per day, yeah, and you know, following the four regular four regular principles, principles. Which I will mention just for the benefit of listeners. I mentioned this before: no meat eating, no intoxication, no gambling, and no illicit sex. Those four regulative principles or rules plus chanting 16 rounds a day mm-hmm. is sort of the bedrock of m- official membership in the International Society for Krishna Consciousness I believe right yeah those are the rules and regulations I guess you would say um, if you are aspiring to take initiation if, from, okay. a, from a spiritual master from a spiritual teacher and so right. at that point I knew that I was aspiring for initiation for Radhanaswamy. And during this time, were you in communication with him at all? I wasn't in communication with him directly, but I was in communication with my mentors, Yogeshvara and Rukmini Walker. Uh huh. So you spent three months in Vrindavan. Yeah. Was it hot? It was. It was the summer. <laughs> it was blazing. Uh huh. <laughs> and what'd you do? Uh, while I was there, I was staying uh, in a home with other devotees. I was going out on what's called Purikama, which is when you visit the different holy places in like Vrindavan. Pilgrimage, like, kind of? Pilgrimage, yeah. yeah. Sort of. Yeah. And I was reading and learning about the tradition. I was reading all the different books, like Krishna Book was one of the first books that I read. I was making friends with other devotees and learning from them and spending time with them cooking and going to temple programs and making flower garlands and learning the different services that go on in the temple attending the different classes I was attending the morning program uh, which starts at about 4 10 a.m. there and going to the classes and meeting different teachers during this time, did, did you have a sense that you were separating yourself from your American friends, your American culture, your American family, like that you were leaving or somehow there was um, a separation occurring between the culture you had grown up in and the culture that you were sort of uh, absorbing? There was. There, I still kept in contact before I left for this pilgrimage to India, um, which was very hard for my friends and family because I had very, very strong relationships, friends and family. And I think that all of my closest friends and family knew um, that I was going to India for some pretty serious searching. And my mother and my two best friends all kind of felt like maybe I would never come back. Mm-hmm. And that was hard for them. My mother, right before I left, looked in my eyes and said, please come home. And I told my mother, mm-hmm. I felt like during this time that I actually asked my teachers and my friends and my family to respect a bit of space 
because although my love for them was very deep and it was hard for me to leave them, um, that I needed the time to find myself. So what I decided to do was um, really no phone calls, but that just to do emails. What I did is I sent out a once a month email update with all of my travels and stories, experiences and realizations, things that I was studying. And I would just go online once a month and I would send that to them and then I would get their responses from the last month. Um, so that was, that was difficult for them, but everyone respected that, which is something I'm very grateful for. And I think that I never had culture shock in India. My first day there, I arrived there and I had zero culture shock. I had a overwhelming sense of coming home, that I, that India was my home and that I belonged there. And it's funny because when I came back to America months later, I was in culture shock for a year in America because I, 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 felt, I felt a very, very, very deep sense of I've been here before type of thing when I was in India. Like, it wasn't new to me. It was something like, you've done this before. And so I think that I didn't feel like I was coming to a new culture or a new identity. I felt like I was coming back to my real culture and my real identity. And I felt, but I, but I did feel like that American identity and that American culture falling away. And to be honest, I did, I did lose, when I came back to America, I did lose some of the closeness with some of my friends mm -hmm. from before because I had changed very dramatically and my lifestyle had changed very dramatically. And Your and clothes, it, your, your diet, your... Yeah, those weren't so, because I, I was already vegan before mm -hmm. I went to India, you know. So that hadn't changed so dramatically. I mean, I was already practicing meditation every day and stuff like that. So, but it was, it was, they, they weren't ready for the whole Hare Krishna thing. Yeah. Um, so there, there definitely was, um, a lot of time needed for understanding to occur. When I came back home, I stayed with my family for some time and, what happened was very beautiful. My father's side of the family was not supportive at first. My, my uncle wanted to get me deprogrammed, but my mother stood up for me. And she didn't understand, but she was committed to trying. And I'm, I can't express how grateful I am to my family for putting up with me. Mm -hmm. Really, because I was a little fanatical, you know, mm -hmm, sure. I was like, you know, I'm vegetarian and you, you know, you and, know and, and what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and I did things that I had to later apologize to them about, Right. you know, and, and I'm lucky that they forgave me because mm -hmm. um, there was definitely, you were, little, you were zealous. I was very zealous. Yeah, I was really <laughs> over the top. But and some you... of the things you you know you look back and you're like, did I really say that? Well, yeah. But my mother and I, over a period of months, had a continuous Christian Vaishnav dialogue going on, mm. um, where we would read uh, the books from this tradition, from the Vaishnav tradition, and we would read Christian books, and we would just sit all day for hours and talk about it. Wow. And it, 
even went through a period of time when I did um, eventually take shelter abroad and I saw me and my mother was there when it happened and she what do you mean take shelter when I asked him to accept me as a disciple as an, as an well, was aspiring that a, was that a phone student. conversation or it was in person you, you personally approached him and said will you please be my guru yes what did he say he said I would be happy to serve you however you would like me to serve you and had you interacted with him before this just that time that I had met him just that one time and then one other time in New York before I went to India that I asked him to sign my book okay. so I had met him two times but this was the first time meeting him since coming back from India and, and knowing that I wanted to ask him to be my teacher and your mother was there yeah and what did she think um, she was not only supportive she at one period of time was chanting Hare Krishna herself and reading all of Prabhupada's books and um, seriously considering practicing bhakti herself which she does she's a she practices bhakti within her Christian tradition but she was yeah. considering at one time taking shelter of um, this tradition I, I, I'm curious what did you learn by dialing it back so what what was the sort of the insights that made you realize oh I'm pushing too hard um, and I'm not accommodating other people like it sounds like you're not as zealous at least with your family as you were at one point like yeah, that that shifted it did what 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 was it that you learned that caused you to find a a better more stable place hmm was it because they you just realized they are not changing how i want them to or that it's not your place to tell them how they should live and eat and pray yeah you know i never i don't think i was with my mother is one thing but with the rest of my family my intention wasn't so much to try to change them or try to make them do this practice i just really wanted them to like understand me and what i was doing you know and respect that uh except i did make one really horrible mistake when I first came home I was like the house has to be a vegeta has to be a vegetarian house because I have to offer my food to Krishna and it has to be pure you know mm. and, and like that's a big thing to ask people yeah and they didn't they did it really they did it I also didn't think I was going to be home very long but I ended up being home longer than I thought and were they vegetarian the whole time or most of the time most of the time well, the other thing is, you know, the one thing is, you know, I need to eat vegetarian. But another thing, it's a whole another thing to say, it is. because I need to offer it to Krishna. It is. And these are Christians. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they were, it sounds like they were very accommodating. They were. And I learned that, number one, I have to love unconditionally. Mm -hmm. I have to love them unconditionally for who they are and be grateful for who they are number two yes you cannot change anyone number three I just need to change myself I just need to work on myself I just need to mature and that they don't need to understand what I'm doing they don't need to support what I'm doing because I had to come to this place of they might never mm -hmm. and that's okay 
but that but that they're family and I need to take the time to have a relationship with them and to to respect and honor what's important to them in their life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's just a question of time, really. Like, we mature in our own devotional lives. And also, as time has gone on, and they've seen that I, this is something that's not just a phase, but that I'm sticking right. and with. And how long has it been? I came back from India in 2012. Um, so it's been five years? Yeah. So not that long, really. No. Um, but even over that period of time, a lot of work has gone into my relationship with my family. But I can honestly say now that it's really, really good. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And over time, just as they see that I'm practicing, I'm maturing, I'm just a... Just, there's a huge power in just being normal, you know, yeah. like not being weird, <laughs> but just like, yeah. just like I have this policy now when I go over to my sister's house, uh-huh. I don't bring up Hare Krishna. Mm-hmm. And I had that policy for a couple of years. Like, I'm not going to talk about it. If they ask me, that's one thing, mm. but I'm going to talk about whatever they want to talk about. Yeah. And just recently, actually, like in the last couple of months. Because I just had another trip to India recently, and I just got back. In the last couple of months, I've come to a place with some members of my family where I'm able to share actually so much deeper about my Krishna consciousness, and they're actually wanting to know. They're actually enthusiastic to know. Because for some years now, I've just been normal and not talked about it, and I've just focused on the relationship is not about me, Mm-hmm. It's about them and what I can give to them mm-hmm. and how I can serve them and how I can make them happy. That now we're at a place where they respect what I do and they actually want to know. And it's very healing for me because I can actually share my heart. And just a, a couple weeks back, I had a lunch with my dad and my uncle. And my uncle told me he was very proud of me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I often think, I often refer back to, uh, there's a book, and I forget which book it's in, but there's different levels of being a devotee, of being a, a bhakti yogi, right? But at the, at the top, what and what you really want to get to, apparently, and you can correct me at any point, is where you don't really feel like you're a devotee at all, you don't feel like you love God at all, but you assume that everyone around you loves God completely and is serving Him always. Which, there's a lot of interesting implications. Now, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. I'm not there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, neither am I. But it sort of gives you a little bit of a game plan or or, or a way to assess your own mental state, really. Um, it, It seems that as you advance, you lose your confidence in yourself as a 
holy person. But you gain confidence in the holiness of other people. Yeah. And that sounds like the direction you've trended over the past five years in terms of your family and your relationships. I would say I'm making progress in the right direction. Uh-huh. Do you feel like you've made progress? Well, how, how did your first trip to India compare with your second trip to India? Was it your second? It was my third. Your third. Like, have they changed? Yeah. How? The first time that you're there, for example, in Vrindavan, it's really ecstatic. You're experiencing spiritual emotions that you've never had before. And you're, you're so caught up in this amazing thing of Krishna consciousness. And this is something that, you know, devotees talk about this uh, introductory offer when you first join Krishna consciousness where you get this, like, big taste at the beginning. And then, uh, like, later on, you have to work for it. But I think with that, like, initial enthusiasm and like ecstasy that you're experiencing you can feel like you found the absolute truth and everybody else has got to have it mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. and there's subtle pride there there's subtle pride of, of maybe like maybe I'm better than you Maybe I know more than you. Maybe I've found it and you haven't mm -hmm. type of thing. And it's total pride. It's total pride. And I think that as you try and mature in your devotional life, you, you, learn, you begin to learn what real humility is. Because pride and low self-esteem are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. and real humility and real self-confidence are two sides of the same coin so you start to realize like you know God doesn't love me because I'm great or someone special mm -hmm. and I'm not like super special because I've found this thing but that I'm special because God loves me but you're also special because God loves you and God loves each and every one of us just the same. As we are. As well, we are. The unimproved version? Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. And so and so each and every one of us as we are. Mm. And and that everyone's on their own journey. And who are we to compare our journey to somebody else's journey? Seriously. So so how did this okay, so the first time you went to India was ecstatic yeah you were overwhelmed with what you had found yeah then what happened the second time the second time was a shorter trip um and it was for the the purpose of healing actually um i went the first time i went alone the second time i went with uh, mother padma from our congregation and being in her association, being in the association of an advanced devotee, someone who's more advanced than me, completely changed the trip. Hmm. 
it's a completely different experience going by your own very beginner self and going with someone who knows way more about life and way more about devotion than you and who can really slap you into a good perspective like hey get it together mm. you know and I can't express how much I appreciate her and appreciate um, those moments of of chastisement when when she has shaken me and my false ego up to um, addressing things that need to change within myself and going deeper in my spiritual life. So the second trip was, there was still a lot of enthusiasm, but it was in a different way. It was in, and I had just taken initiation at that time from Radhanaswamy. And I think that the second trip was like, what is this practice really? Mm -hmm. You know, at first you're just kind of seeing it from this surface and it's all ecstatic. The second trip was like an attempt to dive deep into the heart. And then this third trip... Which was pretty recently, right? Yeah, the third trip I just got back like a couple months ago. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was there for five months this last trip. And I went to Mayapur as well. And to be honest, it was one of the most challenging times of my life where I w had the opportunity to go deeper. And I also, it wasn't easy. I had to face a lot of external challenges and also um, internal things that I was addressing and going deeper into my my chanting and my reading and um, I was back in Vrindavan for the first time since being there initially and um, I had to really get serious yeah uh, while when you were in India, yeah, you had to get get pretty serious. Yeah. How do you feel about yourself? In what way? Now, after after what you've been through, your three trips to India, your your practice of Krishna consciousness. I feel like I'm just beginning. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um. I just a couple weeks back took second initiation. What does that mean? It's um, There's two initiations within the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. The first one is Harinam, when you commit you know, to the 16 rounds a day and the four regulative principles. The second initiation is when you get the Gayatri Mantra to be chanted three times a day, which is uh, seven prayers to be said um, at specific times, like in the morning as the sun's rising, then midday when the sun's at its peak, and then in the evening when the sun's coming down. And you're supposed to, it's called Brahman initiation, where you're supposed to live your life according to Brahminical qualities. Now, I don't <laughs> at all see myself as being qualified for that. I asked my teacher to explain what that meant, and he said it means to have very strict sadhana, or spiritual practice, very good sadhachar character and to be very very clean 
and to follow your role models um, who are my mentors and I feel like I feel very excited about the future because I feel the more I practice Krishna consciousness the more I feel a beginner <laughs> and mm -hmm. the more I feel that there is so much to this we have so much to look forward to ahead of us it's an unending possibilities in this process to go deeper to become a better devotee of Krishna to become a better human being to be able to share with others to give with others so I'm I'm simultaneously very excited about uh, my future and very excited and very grateful to be a part of this mission to be a part of this community and to have the good fortune to be able to hopefully um, serve those who have whatever I have today is a result of what I've been given by others none of it is my own spiritual progress or my own spiritual worth or stamina it's all a gift from my teachers and from the devotees around me and I think my biggest realization in this practice has been that I can't do it alone but mm -hmm. that we have to come together as a community and we need each other we can't do it by ourselves and then with that realization comes a commitment to to sharing that with each other just like a family sits down at the dinner table and breaks bread and passes it around and then that same family then goes out into the world to try to give it to others so I feel a commitment to go deeper in my relationships with the devotees and a commitment to share this knowledge with others not in a pushy way mm -hmm. <laughs> um, not in a way I'm better than you but in a trying to be humble way especially when dealing with other people who have dedicated their lives to God because it's not a sectarian mission and whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew or an atheist, or, or a Zoroastrian, yeah, or a Jain, yeah, or a Buddhist, or you. a Confucian. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> or none of the above. You have ultimate value and worth. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, let's, let's turn our perspective a little bit towards the future. Mm -hmm. You are a dancer. Um, do you have plans to... Um, utilize dance mm. I'm not sure I could see myself definitely utilizing drama mm -hmm. one thing that I'm I hadn't mentioned in this interview as of yet is uh, also during the last five years of my life beginning when I was in India I became very ill and I actually was critically ill for about mm, four years. I'm in recovery right now. Um, so I still don't have good health. I'm much better than I was. But I'm not actually physically right now able to dance. Mm -hmm. And I haven't been for some time due to that illness. So I don't, I don't know if I'll ever get that ability back, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And... And I, 
even if I do get the ability back. I if Krishna presents an opportunity in such a way where it's clear to me this is what he wants me to do, mm-hmm. then for sure I'll do it. You know, there's been some opportunities for drama and things like that, so we've done that. If he if if I feel like that's the direction that he would like me to go in and I'm also physically able to do it, then I would definitely do that. But my feeling in my heart now is as is just to be able to dance in kirtan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just to be able to dance for Krishna satisfies that aspect of myself. I actually feel now that um, the way that I, what I have to offer, what I have to give within this mission is more, I feel more drawn to teaching and preaching. And with devotees and their practice, going deeper in their practice, um, and outreach. I feel more. I feel more drawn to outreach. And what is outreach exactly? Mm. Outreach is presenting the philosophy of bhakti yoga to to, to anyone, to to those who are interested to learn about it, and in such a way that they can relate to it, because everyone's coming from a different place. So when you're when you're speaking with different people, you have to relate to them where they're at. Now, that's sort of the theory, but what's the, in what practical ways, how do you apply that in terms of outreach? Is it um, through yoga centers? Is Mm -hmm. it through uh, going out and chanting in the street? Is it uh, networking, like, how does that manifest yeah. in the outreach? Like, what exactly do you want to... What's your way of reaching? Yeah. I'm at a place in my life right now where I'm still figuring that out. Mm. I, I can't tell you I have the answer. But the service that I'm doing right now here at the Potomac Temple is book distribution and going out and chanting on the streets, Harinam, and... Um, we're having some different school programs, like where um, high school or middle schoolers come here to the temple and we teach them. We have this uh, Gita walk and mantra meditation, these kind of things to teach people about chanting, to teach people about some of the values and principles that the Bhagavad Gita teaches, and trying to organize um, a Sankirtan team to go out and do more chanting and book distribution on the streets so that's what I'm doing right now where that will go in the future I'm not sure one thing I have definitely thought about before is I'm a yoga teacher so mm. that is a great way to reach people and what style of yoga Jiva Mukti oh Jiva Mukti yeah okay. so so whether I'll go back into that at some point that's a definite possibility uh-huh. um I'm at a point in my life where I'm really exploring and thinking about that and um, taking guidance about how that will manifest down the road. Mm-hmm. But also another thing that I'm conscious of, I I really in my life used to be like a 
big on type A personality uh, with huge goals and a big goal sheet and lots of planning and this is my one-year plan, this is my five-year plan, this is my mm -hmm. 10-year plan. And one thing that I really enjoy that shifted in me is that I'm no longer like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I can feel totally happy and at ease and peaceful being in the now and being not not needing to know how that service will manifest one, five, ten years from now. But I just need to focus on the service that I'm doing now. And if I if Krishna has put me in a particular circumstance and situation now, if I make the most out of that now, if I give my heart and my soul to it and really try my best, I believe that Krishna will continue to give me more and more opportunities to serve more. Yeah. And he will he will reveal to me the details of how it will manifest in the future. Mm -hmm. And it is a big journey to go from having a one-year plan, a five-year plan, and a ten-year plan to not having plans. Yeah. That, that itself is a big psychological and I'm sure physical and even geographical change. Like there's a lot to that. Mm. It sounds simple and it's it's easily summed up, but I know that there's there's a lot in there, right? So you're um, you're going to be a bhakti yogini <laughs> <laughs> for a good while, I would assume. <laughs> I mean, I'm committed for life. <laughs> right, and especially if you've took taken second initiation, that's a yeah. You're basically saying, I'm on board, I'm not getting off, Yeah. and uh, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to make use of this life, right? Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a commitment to dedicate my life to it, joyfully. Right. Hmm. Well, I think that's a, that's a very nice place to end our interview. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you so much for talking with me sure. and for doing these podcasts. Oh, you're welcome. Absolutely. Um, and you've been listening to Questions for the Sages. I'm Michael Scherer. Thanks again to Champakavatasaki Devidasi. It was very nice to meet you. Thanks to Rico Hayes for the theme music, and to Miriam Lansky for discussions about how to approach the subject matter of the podcast. And thank you to the Hare Krishna community of Potomac, Maryland for making this podcast possible. I'm Michael Scherer, and you've been listening to Questions for the Sages. Mm -hmm.